Open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter number 16. And we'll begin in a very familiar place, verse 19 in a little bit. I was just thinking when I started preaching over 53 years ago, I thought about how times have changed, churches have changed, preaching has changed. And I think the fact that preaching has changed says a lot about why everything else keeps changing for the worst instead of for the better. When I think about preaching back then uh, and the emphasis upon uh, subjects, there's been a seismic shift. And today there's a lot less, less preaching about hell and judgment. It's almost that... If it is mentioned, it's, preachers seem almost apologetic about it, that, that it's something we ought not to talk about, or they're embarrassed to even suggest that there is a place such as hell. And I admit that is a dreadful, dreadful subject, but that is all the more reason why, why we ought to preach about the subject of hell. The Bible says more about hell than it does about heaven. Think about it. There are 27 books here in the New Testament, 264 chapters, and 234 times God speaks about a place of judgment or eternal punishment. Now imagine going down the highway 27 miles, and during that 27-mile stretch, as you count off the count off the mileage signs, you also notice in addition to that that there are 234 warning signs, gigantic warning signs written in red that says stop dead in, road out, bottomless pit. I don't know about you, but by the time I got down there to about mile marker 20, Five or 26, I think I'd be slowing down. I think that would get my attention. And it ought to get our attention, the fact that Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. In fact, he spoke more about hell than any other person in the Bible. So if we're going to follow his example, then we must not neglect this subject. And any preacher that would refuse to speak on the subject of hell, on the subject of judgment, is your enemy, not your friend. No true friend would fail to warn you of impending judgment. So this morning, I'm going to preach on this subject, and I don't know of any section of Scripture better suited for that than the story found here in Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. There was... A certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fed sumptuously every day. Oh, that's remarkable, isn't it? Every day. I've known a lot of people that, you know, had a lot of money, rich people, but I don't think I ever knew any of them that fared sumptuously every single day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, and it came to pass 
that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all of this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, and neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. I want to speak to you this morning about what some have called the rich man and Lazarus. I'm going to alliterate that and call this the loser and Lazarus. The loser and Lazarus. Here we find the most common and the most critical contrast in all of the world. I want you to notice that this is a story that is a bit of history and it's not a parable. It's by the greatest preacher who ever lived on the worst subject imaginable. It's the story of two men who represent the two classes of people that are on the earth, those that are saved and those that are lost. And it reminds us that there are only two eternal destinies. There's either heaven or hell. So whoever you are this morning, you're either saved or you're lost and you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. And I want us to look at this critical contrast between these two men and they are contrasted here in at least three different ways. First of all, there is their earth, earthly experience. Notice in verse 19, it speaks about the prosperity of the one. Now, since our presumptions are often false, I don't want to jump to conclusions about this man. We tend to do that. We get ourselves in trouble when we presume upon things. And to presume about this man and his history based on the fact that he was lost would be wrong. Think about all of the possibilities. It might have been that this man was rich because he had inherited his wealth. It's not that he had done anything wrong, but he had inherited his wealth. And, you know, that's well and good. Everybody would like to have a rich uncle, wouldn't they? Not anything wrong with that. The Bible doesn't condemn riches. It condemns the love of money. 
But it might have been that he had cheated and lied in order to gain his wealth. I, I, I don't know. He pushed the pencil, arranged the figures, and cheated until he got everything in his favor. It might have been that he had just outright stolen this money. I don't know, but there's another possibility, and that is the possibility that maybe this man had worked hard for his money. I mean, I've got as much right to believe that as you to think that he was dishonest in some way. He might have worked hard all of his life to gain what he had. I try to imagine that maybe these two men had been raised in the same circumstances, in the same neighborhood. If it was a story about today, let's just assume that was the case. Let's assume they went to the same high school. The one did his very best, studied hard, made good grades, got a scholarship, went off to college, got a good education, prepared himself, went into business, made a ton of money. The other was kind of like me, skipped as many classes as he could, hung out in the pool halls all he could, drank as much as he could, just wasted away his life. And it just might be that whenever the day came that the rich man discovered the beggar at his gate, knowing who he was, it just might be that he thought, why in the world should I help him? He has been lazy. He has refused to work. He has refused to take advantage of the opportunities. He's made his bed. Now let him lie in it. It's all his fault. He doesn't have anybody else to blame. He's there because he refused to work. And I am not going to support someone like that. I I can understand why he might have felt that way. We need to remember that this man didn't go to hell because he was rich. And the poor man didn't go to heaven because he was poor. So you have one man here who is living in prosperity, but notice the other man is in poverty. And again, there are several possibilities. It might be at one time that he had had plenty of money. But because of circumstances, not that he has done anything wrong, we'll get to that in a minute, but because of circumstances, things just happened. Things that he did not invite in his life. Things that in no way could be attributed to to his laziness or anything else. Just things happen. I've known people like that. Good people. Hardworking people. And yet as mysterious as it is, in some way or another, for some reason, God just in his providence did not allow them to prosper. By the way, that can happen to any of us. We can be stripped of our health and left flat of our back and not able to enjoy all of the good things of life. I don't know. That might have been what reduced him to poverty. I don't know. It might be that he had lived a sinful life and had wasted what he had. He just blew it away. I've known a lot of people like that. People that had plenty that wasted it all and now they were living in poverty. And 
And then, of course, as I've already mentioned, it might be he'd just been lazy and unwilling to work. There are a lot of people like that in the world. They, you know, back years ago, the hippie movement, those folks just decided there's nothing really more important than us having fun, and we'll go out here and live in the community. You've got to give those folks credit for one thing. They didn't care whether they had anything or not. All they needed was a jug of wine and a guitar and just get out there under the moonlight and dance till they fell over and have a good time. Just live it up. That was their philosophy. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we might die. A lot of people that live that way and just just literally waste what they have. Unlazy or lazy and unwilling to work. But one thing's for sure, salvation changes people. Whatever this man had in the past, whatever this man had done, regardless of all of the details that we could discuss, the fact is he had changed drastically. Salvation changes things, but salvation does not change everything. You see, we can do some things that we cannot undo. When God saved me, he didn't remove any scars from my body. The scars are still there. He didn't take those scars away. So a lot of times we make decisions before we're saved that we have to live with throughout the rest of our life. Whatever he had done that was wrong, whatever it is that had brought him to poverty, he's a different man. He has been changed, but now in this condition, there's not any way he can change those things in his life. He has to live with the monster that he had created for himself. So there's a big difference in their earthly experience. One in prosperity, the other in poverty. But there's another contrast here, and that is the contrast in their exit from earth. We all have one thing in common, don't we? And that's death. It's appointed unto man once to die. Death comes to all of us. It is a reality. And both of these men died. Now, our text doesn't go into detail about this, but I believe there's a difference in the way people die, a difference in the way that Christians die and non-Christians die. And I say that based on observation over the years, being, being in a room with someone when they passed away or being with a family in the hospital whenever they, when they finally died. Let me tell you, there is a difference in which people leave this world. It makes a difference when you know Christ is your Savior, your sins have been forgiven, and heaven is your home. Boy, that makes such a big difference. I can remember years ago getting ready to leave for a Bible conference in Texas and got a telephone call. One of my deacons was already down here in Texas attending the conference and I Bev and I in fact were getting ready to go and got the phone call that one of his sons had been severely burned and I'll never forget his dad flew back immediately and uh, as soon as he got back I went to the hospital there with him was standing there and 
David had gone to sleep with a cigarette in his hand and started a fire, and he was burned to the point that they just knew he wasn't going to make it. And I'll never forget, you, you couldn't hear him unless you just bent over and got right down to him. And, and as I stood there, and you could tell David was trying to say something, and I got my ear right down next to his, next to his mouth, and he said, I love you. David had been one of the young men in our church, and uh, had not always been as faithful as he should have been. And sometimes you wonder, am I really getting through to this kid? But David said, I love you. And just a matter of minutes later, David slipped off into eternity. I'm glad that that young man could die in peace because he knew the Lord as his Savior. It makes such a big difference. So there no doubt was a difference in, in their manner of death, but the real difference is that one died in hope and the other one didn't. And the real difference has to do with, with what happened after they died. Look in verse 22. It tells us that the rich man was buried. Now that's significant. He was buried. And according to the custom of that day, the body was washed, it was wrapped in cloth, it was loosely bound in bands, it was carried to the grave, which was commonly a a cave cut out of rock, and the perfumes were applied to the body, and the fragrant incenses were burned, and the mourners would grieve. In many cases, they hired mourners to come and to grieve over the deceased. Boy, if you've got to hire somebody to come and cry when I die, save your money. I don't want their crocodile tears. Amen. But that was the case, and especially with someone that was an uppity up, someone on the higher rung of the social ladder, like evidently this man was. There was a big deal made out of, uh, out of this man and the funeral service. But we come to the to the other and we read of no such explanation doesn't say he was buried probably wasn't buried I mean after all nobody would feed him so why should we believe that anybody would bury him and the custom in that day for for those who were beggars is when they died more than likely out there in the street somewhere, or in this case at the gate of the rich man, he died. And they just dragged the body out of the city, out into the garbage dump, and disposed of the body. What a sad thought. Look, this is some mother's boy. This is somebody's child. I don't know anything about his family history. Maybe they had all died. I, I, I have no idea. But he is somebody who at one time meant something to someone. And now he's like a dead animal laying in the street. And they drag his body out to the garbage dump. And there it's disposed of. No one to mourn over his passing. No one to anoint his body with perfumes. No one burning incense there. 
just one unknown forgotten man. There's a big difference here in their exit from the earth. But the greatest contrast comes from their eternal existence. And um, I look at this story and I'm reminded that there is a sense in which a person can, can be in bad circumstances and yet in a good condition. These are bad circumstances. This man has been begging for food. He's not begging for a Cadillac. He's not begging for a mansion on the hilltop. He's begging for food. He would have eaten what the dogs eat, anything. He's starving. He's in a bad, bad circumstances, but boy, he was in a good condition. And on the other hand, the other man was in good circumstances. Look at what it says here. He was clothed in purple and fine linen. Fine linen. I mean, that's something that only the rich people could afford. Fine linen. And he fared sumptuously every day. The circumstances are great, but the condition is horrible. And notice the contrast because one is in pain and the other is in paradise. He says in verse 23 and verse 24 to sum it all up that he was tormented. And there are five things, whenever I think about that word tormented, five things come to my mind. And the first one is this, that he had retained his desires. Have you ever thought about that? Retained his desires. He wants water. That's it was only natural to crave water when he was thirsty here on earth, but now he's dead, he's gone, but what does he want? He wants water. In Revelation twenty two eleven, it talks about those that have died and says, He that is just, let him be just still. He that is unjust, let him be just unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. And it goes on and on and speaking about the fact that however a person dies, those desires they have, those desires remain with them. Think about that. I've sat up all night with someone that was trying to trying to defeat the demon of alcohol. Imagine going through the withdrawal or someone that's on drugs going through withdrawal. And think about spending eternity craving what you've been craving here on earth. He has retained his desires. He wants a drink of water and, and yet there's nothing there for satisfaction. Not only that, but notice he, verse 24, he requested relief. He's begging now. The rich man has become a beggar. He's begging because he made several discoveries. Number one, he discovered death doesn't end it all. A lot of folks would like to believe that we just die like a dog, you know, and that, that's it. We lapse into a state of unconsciousness and, we, and we're gone. 
forever. Mary Baker Eddy tried to convince people with her with her heresy many years ago, the the fallacy of death that we don't really die. I'm kind of like one preacher said, I'll tell you what, one day that old gal quit breathing. They took her out to the cemetery and dug a hole and put her in and throwed six foot of dirt in her face and I'd just soon be dead as being a shape like that. Amen. I, Death is real, folks, and he discovered death doesn't end at all. He discovered that hell is real. He discovered that there's no such thing as soul sleep. There's no such thing as purgatory. There's no such thing as a second chance. He discovered that there's no one that can help. When you die in that condition, even Abraham cannot help you. No one can. But he requested relief and couldn't get it then you look in verse 25 and you'll notice that he was reminded of God's goodness Abraham said son remember Boy, memories can be so very painful remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things keep in mind that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance Nobody can ever claim that God was not good to them. But here is a man that God had been exceedingly good to. Fared sumptuously every day and dressed in purple and fine linen. Had everything that the body could desire. But he was lost. And now he remembers that. I believe he remembered a whole lot more than that. I believe he remembered every evil deed, every warning, every opportunity, and every blessing that he had ever received from God. Haunted by those memories and forever separated from God. There's something else I believe that he eventually becomes aware of that we need to remember, and that is he received what he deserved. We think about how awful hell is, and you know, we would like to believe in our mind that, that nobody deserves something like that, but the truth is we all deserve something like that. You and I are no better than this man. We're not going to heaven and escaping hell because we're some way better than this man. That has nothing to do with it. We all deserve hell. God is a holy God. God is a just God. And sin must be punished. So this man got what he deserved, whether we like to believe it or not. But there's something else here that that tortured him, and that was the fact that he realized the plight of his loved ones. Verse 27. And then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father. I wonder how often he prayed while he was here on earth. He's praying now. I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren. Have you ever heard some smart aleck say something like this? Well, I don't care if I'm going to hell because all of my friends are there. Let me tell you, there's nobody in hell that wants you to be there. Nobody. They don't want you to come there. You're not going to have any friends there. 
And all of a sudden, this man being in hell, being tormented, begins to think about his five brothers. And he's begging Abraham, please. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we Christians had that much concern about those that are lost? While we've got an opportunity to do something about it. Send him to my father's house. That would require a resurrection, right? Send Lazarus to my father's house. And Abraham says, I can't. There's a great gulf fixed. We can't come there. You can't come here. It's final. Besides, they have they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the word of God. Let, let them hear that. Oh, no. He, he said, no, no, no. You, you, you don't understand. They won't listen to what the Scriptures have to say, but... If somebody from the dead went back, knocked on door, can you imagine these guys? These guys evidently knew Lazarus. Can you imagine old Lazarus knocking on the door, saying, uh, after they've had their fainting spell, "How in the world did you get back here? We throwed you in the dump. Your, we watched your body being burned along with all of the other garbage. How, how did you get here?" He said, if, if that happened, they'd believe. And Abraham said, oh, no. If they won't listen to the word of God, Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if one rose from the dead. And the fact that our dear Savior, Jesus Christ, arose from the dead proves that he was right. There are people that are still not convinced in spite of all of that evidence But here is a man now concerned about his loved ones, but it's too late. Here's the contrast. Now look at verse 25. But Abraham said, Son, remember that that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But here it is. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. The one is in the bosom of Abraham. He is in paradise. He is in a place where there is no sorrow, no crying, no pain, no sickness, no death, no misunderstandings. Isn't it a wonderful thing to be here today and to know of a certainty that you know that you know that you know that when you take your last breath, regardless of whether they bury your body or burn your body, it makes no difference what happens to your body, that you'll enter into the presence of the Lord. And they're free from all of the heartache and the pain and the misery and the suffering that is so common in this old world. Thank God for so great a salvation. The reality of hell. The reality of hell should cause you to be sure of your profession. Again and again, the Apostle Paul, as he wrote to the various churches, reminded them that he said to the church at Corinth, Examine yourselves. 
You need to be sure of your profession. There are many here today that that could tell you the story of how they've made two or three or maybe sometimes even more professions of faith. I've had people to tell me, yeah, I made a profession of faith when I was a, a child. It was at vacation Bible school or summer camp or whatever it was. And I was, you know, six or seven years old and all of the other kids were getting saved. And so I didn't want to be left out. And so I walked down the aisle and told the preacher I wanted to be saved. But in reality, I didn't even know what I was doing or why I really needed to be saved. I'd never been under any conviction about my sin, and they admit to that. But how terrible it would be to think had they died before of they come to that place. The reality of hell should cause you to be sure of your profession. It ought to cause you to be serious in your witnessing. And steadfast in your service to the Lord. I can guarantee you that sooner or later, you, you might be the most spiritual-minded, best Christian in this congregation. But sooner or later, there's going to come a time, at least a, a brief amount of time perhaps, but there will come a time when you'll feel like just throwing the towel in. You'll feel like just giving up. Don't. You dare give up. You don't have the right to give up. We need to remain steadfast in our service. You say, well, yeah, but, you know, the preacher did this and the preacher didn't make any difference. What I do, regardless of how much I fail you, the Lord has never failed you. Be steadfast in your service because there are folks that are dying and going to hell every day and And the Lord's church needs what you have to offer. If we could really, if we could really, I guess, really understand how horrible hell is, you know, maybe that would make a difference. And I know that I and other preachers, we have tried at various times to describe hell. I've preached entire sermons about that. We can talk about the fire and the brimstone and all of those different things. But, you know, I've come to believe that maybe the best way to understand how horrible hell is is to, is to not think so much about hell as to just look at Calvary. Look at the cross. And you look at the cross and you see there the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the condemnation that was placed upon Him. You see the One who is the water of life begging for a drop of water. He's thirsty. You see Him who is pure and holy in wicked company. You see the tears. Then there's the darkness and the separation from God, those final three hours of darkness where God pulls a canopy of darkness over the earth. And that's when the greatest suffering took place because for the first time in all of eternity, the fellowship between the Father and the Son was broken. Because that's what hell is all about. It's not about the fire and the brimstone. It's about the separation from God. 
That's the most horrible part about it and the fact that worse than going there is staying there because it is an eternal state of separation from God. And that's what Jesus suffered. He suffered great, greatly in a physical sense. But the worst part of it was, as Isaiah said, when he poured out his soul in offering for sin. His very life, the very essence of what he was, was all laid on the altar of sacrifice that day. And he died for us and suffered what hell would be for for everybody. And we can't comprehend that because I can stand here and say to you that Jesus was sinless, but how do I explain something like that? When I talk about the holiness of God, I, 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 I can't even imagine how holy God is. It's beyond my ability to comprehend or explain. And so neither... If I can't understand God's holiness, neither can I understand the, the greatness of the sacrifice that Jesus made when all of the sin of the world was placed upon him and he died for the world and he died for you. He suffered what would be hell for every man, woman, boy, and girl. Thank God because of what he did. You don't have to go to this place of torment. You can be born again right here this morning and receive eternal life. Would you trust him? Oh, I'm sure this, this rich man thought, oh, if I just had another chance, if I could just have one more opportunity, I not only would feed that beggar, I, I, I would trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But there was no second chance for him, and neither shall there be for you if you're lost. Would you trust him today? Christians, maybe you're here today and you're, you're discouraged over life in general or whatever it is. Don't, don't give up. There's a world dying all around us in need of Christ. Let us dedicate ourselves to to serving Him that we might reach them before it's too late. Let's stand. Father, how we thank You for the truth of Your Word and to know, Lord, that this is not just some make-believe parable as some have supposed, but it's a real true story of two real men, one in heaven and one in hell, Lord, I pray this morning that you'll use your word to impress upon the hearts of those that are lost the, the great, their great need of salvation. And may the Holy Spirit, he move upon their heart today and draw them, draw them to Christ. Lord, I pray that you'll help them to sweep aside every excuse and break down every barrier. And today that they'll take advantage of this wonderful opportunity. And Lord, for those of us that have unsaved loved ones, may we do what we can while we can, not only to be a good example before them, but may we do what we can to remind them that we serve a risen Savior who has given evidence that He is everything He claimed to be. 
accomplish your will in our hearts today. For we ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. While we stand and as we sing, those awaiting baptism, if you'll come, please. And if you're here and never been saved, would you come? Kenneth has already uh, I started to say left the building I hope not uh, he's headed up to the baptistry with Ryan and as everybody knows Ryan has received the Lord as his Savior during our winter retreat and he's going to follow the Lord in baptism today but Savannah was saved back during vacation Bible school and the Lord's been dealing with her about what she ought to ought to do and she wants to present herself today for baptism this is savannah easel did i get that right easel that's pretty close anyway and so what sounds like a good deal to me what does the church say now, all in favor let me know the uplift the hand all opposed like sign and everybody voted for you in addition to that brother alex and and stephanie uh, brown uh, but Alex just came, and I knew this w was going to happen today, and they're, they're making their way. And they're coming today by statement. Brother Kenneth and I have talked with them. They both trusted Christ as their Savior. They've both been scripturally baptized. And, uh, you know, over the process of time, people change from one church to another. And, but they're in good standing and no problem. But uh, they're coming by statement today. So what's the favor of the church? All right. Motion made. Wesley, second. All in favor, let me know. Duff, lift the hand. Hey. All opposed, like sign. Amen. Hey. Well, let's see. Amen. I tell you what, we're going to we're going to let them be seated here also. Oh, you can be seated. And uh, 
Tim, lead us in a song or a chorus, and Brother Kenneth and Ryan will be out in just a minute. And afterward, I hope you'll stay around because Ryan will be coming back down here. And we want to welcome these folks into our church family also. Amen. All right. Tim. Oh, wow. This song's on my heart. 607. 607. 607. What a day that will be. Amen. Amen. Day, glorious day that will be. 